Thank you, Sanctuary. Thank you, Sanctuary. Good morning. Thank you, Father Paul, for that. And thank you all for being here. Thank you for deciding to be here. Even, even if you knew I was going to be here, especially if you knew I was going to be here. It really is a joy. Like One of the joys of this task that's been entrusted to me is that I have lots of homes, but this is a home for us, has been a home for us for a long time. It was home for us before we lived in Tulsa. It was home for us while we lived in Tulsa, and it's home for us now that we no longer live in Tulsa. We, both Julie and I, talk often about you and about our time here. We miss you. And with all the good things that are happening, and there's a lot that we're rejoicing in, we, we do miss being with you and think about you often, watch the services, stay in touch with a lot, of, a lot of you, and know that you're in our prayers, and I hope we're in yours. You, you have been a sanctuary for us. And there are too many people to name and too many kindnesses to, to give thanks for, but I, I do want to name three people in particular this time, and next time I'm back, I'll name others. Uh, first, I, I need to say a special thanks to Mother Janice and Father Brent for the care that they've given to me and my wife. And through when, when we moved here to Tulsa, we were both in a pretty difficult place for all kinds of reasons. And obviously, while we were here and I, I had the stroke, that opened up so many old wounds that had been healing. And they loved us and cared for us day after day, and it literally was many times daily care. And th that, needs to be, that needs to be honored. And this, what Father Paul said about Bishop Ed is true also about Brent and Janice, in part because they're such foundational figures, they're part of the background. But from time to time, we need to call out, we wouldn't be here without those people, and we wouldn't be here as the people we are without their care. So Mother Janice, Father Brent, thank you. Thank you very much. Can we give them a hand? And the other person I need to name, and I will not be able to do this without crying, is Shelby. I've known Shelby for a long time. I've been involved with Sanctuary for over a decade, and I've known Shelby that, that entire stretch of time. But when she became the youth pastor for my kids, the children's pastor for my kids, I saw Shelby differently, and I saw the way that she loved them and cared for them and honored them, treated them as persons in ways that it's not always easy for me as their dad to see, and I marvel at that. So I, I want to say a deep, deep, deep thank you to Shelby for that. And this is someone else that's easy, again, because she's been here forever. She's, she's part of the background. Don't lose sight of those people. They're, they're crucial to who we are, who we have been, who we are, who we're becoming. So Shelby, thank you so much. Let's give her a hand as well. We have baptisms this morning, which is one of the delights of the work that we get to do. And so I'm, I'm going to be brief for me, not brief for sanctuary, but for those of you who've heard me preach, I'll be shorter than normal which for those of you who don't know what that means, within an hour, for sure, for sure. Uh, but I, I, I want to press just, just one really simple point about the fear of the Lord. So let's begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for your word, for the way it gives us life and light and awakens us to live with the joy you know 
and share with us. Let us hear your word today and let us respond in faith and hope and love. Amen. Now, I'm certain it's because of the responsibilities pushed on me, pressed on me by the Episcopate, but I've been more and more and more thinking about the need to return to what is most basic, to return to the elemental, the essential in, in our faith. I had the joy last week of being with Father Robbie. Just a few weeks ago, I had the joy of being with Phil and Marissa Odd. These are churches and clergy in our diocese. And in, in those settings, as well as, of course, the work I'm doing with St. Mary's, week after week, what I'm feeling more and more is we have to come down to the core. We have to return to the heart of the matter. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning, specifically the fear of the Lord at, as the heart of the matter. There's, there's so much happening in the world right now. You don't need me to tell you this. At every scale, personal, international, local, familial, at every scale of our lives, there's so much happening that can turn our attention away from the Lord and turn our attention away from the things the Lord has told us matter most. So my job as your bishop is to just remind you to keep your eyes on him and to keep your ears attuned to what he says matters most. So coming here on this morning, gathering for these sacraments, hearing this word, that, that's what you have to keep doing. And let me encourage you to keep doing that. Keep coming to church. Keep making that a, a core aspect of your week. Keep going to those who are in need. Keep giving your time to weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Keep your heart open to the nearness of Jesus in your day-to-day life. Be sensitive to the movements of the Spirit in you and around you. Remember what matters most and give yourself to it. Dedicate yourself to it day after day. And all of that, all of that returning to the basics is, is impossible apart from a certain kind of yieldness, a certain kind of readiness to obey what the Lord requires. We've all, we've all heard the Vince Lombardi, this is a football story, right? And he starts camp reminding all of these professional players, we've got to get back to the heart of, this is the football. But long before he pulled that stunt, which worked masterfully, I mean, there's a reason he's considered Vince Lombardi. When he was coaching freshman basketball at Fordham, he coached both freshman football and freshman basketball the same year at Fordham. This, he began both of those camps by asking everyone on the team to trust him. And it supposedly, the story as I've heard it goes like this. He gathers the team around, freshman basketball, freshman football, and says, God, Fordham, and the president have entrusted me with the authority to coach this team. Which is, I mean, that's, that's a pretty great start, right? And if you agree to trust my direction and to obey what it is we're called to do, then I want you to step across this line. And this is the beginning of Vince Lombardi's career. And that every year, whatever team he was coaching, he began with this point. I've been entrusted with the authority to guide you into what it is you're going to do. You've got to trust me for that. And what, what that story does is it, there, there's a... There's a podcast Phil Jackson did recently with Rick Rubin, and this is where I heard this story first, and then I went and read about it. And Phil Jackson started doing this with his basketball teams at the NBA level every year, the first day of camp. This is the basketball. These are the basics. Will you step across this line and trust me to be your coach? 
And fascinatingly, Phil Jackson, by the way, he was raised old school Pentecostal. His parents were assemblies of God, pastors and missionaries. Phil Jackson, like, like I was, was raised without a television amongst like old school holiness Pentecostal folks. And he talks a lot about the move of the spirit and how he came much later in life to realize that when a team was playing well together, it was because they had learned to trust the spirit. It's fascinating, the kind of dimension of Phil Jackson's coaching that not a lot of people had heard about. I certainly hadn't heard about it. But one of the things he names there is he says, in order to kind of be caught up into the spirit of a team playing well together, every player has to have a yieldedness, a readiness to obey, to do what's required. And that without that kind of yieldedness or readiness, then everything starts to break down. And I I think that what Jackson and Lombardi are sensing is something basic to what it means to be human. We need direction. We need people we can trust to point us to what it is we need to be directed into, to tell us what needs to be done in this moment. And I think in the midst of all of the chaos around us that we sense, we're losing touch with the most basic things because we're losing confidence in those people who can tell us, no, no, this is what you have to do. This is what matters. So when we go to counseling, when we go to therapy, when we seek out wise counsel, what we're looking for is someone we can trust to tell us, this is what matters. Give your attention to this. And this is the role of the Episcopate, this is the role of the priesthood, to stand here week to week, or if we're meeting through the week, to remind you, no, this is what the Lord requires. And this is why spiritual direction is so vital. And if you're unsure of that right now in your life, find a spiritual director, talk to the Sharps, let them help you find someone who can play that role in your life. Talk to Father Paul, talk to Deacon Alley, find someone here who can help you remember what it is that matters most. That's what I wanna talk about this morning. We're going to look at three texts quickly. Psalm 19 will be first. But as, as you're turning there in your phones to Psalm 19, I, I want to just reiterate something that one of the ways in which we have our attention directed back to what matters most is to know our history well. If you've heard me speak before, if you've been around me long at all, you know that one of the first things I do whenever I've been asked to preach and I'm given texts is to look at what have Christians in the past said about these texts. And I, I do it anytime I'm asked. That's the, after I've read the text and prayed about it, I start to look at what have other Christians said about this. And this particular week, I was struck by the fact that St. Augustine, and this is the, the early 400s, so a little while ago, is asked as a bishop to go to a, a con- an outlying congregation and speak to them about the Ten Commandments, which is what our Old Testament reading is today, the Ten Commandments. He's asked to go and talk to them about the Ten Commandments as their bishop. And in that, he says two things that are, I mean, it's a long sermon, much longer than my sermon to you is going to be. But it is, he says two things that are absolutely stunning, that take me back, even though I've read a lot of St. Augustine's work and he's always surprising and I know going in, he's going to surprise me. But he said two things that stunned me. The first one was this, that God does not so much command as beg for our obedience from inside the needs of those who are around us. So he's talking about the 10 commandments and it would be easy to start with God is God and you are not, so dang it, do what you're told. 
right? And if, you, if you've been a father for more than a few minutes or a parent for more than a few minutes, you know the temptation to resort to that, right? But he, Augustine, as the bishop, speaking to this outlying community, he doesn't say that. He says, these, these are the commands of the Lord. They are commands, but they're commands that come at you through the need of the people around you. God is commanding you to do this because if you don't do this, people around you suffer. If you break these commandments, if you commit adultery, if you bear false witness, if you do not keep the Sabbath, if you build idols, you are harming the people around you. And so he says, God does not so much command as beg for our obedience from inside the needs of our neighbors. We need to be holy people because the people around us need to be able to trust the goodness that's happening in us. We should be leaving goodness and mercy in our wake, not destruction and chaos. And the way we live does determine so much about how others are able to see God and know God. Father JP, you know Father John Paul, he, he's drawn our attention to this many times, that sin is the wrong that I do that steals the joy of the Lord from my neighbor. Sin is the wrong that I do that steals the joy of the Lord from my neighbor. That's why you should stop sinning. Not because God is sweating it. God is not gritting his teeth, frustrated with you because you won't just stop. It's the people around you who are suffering. And that's why we need to be liberated from sin. That, the other thing St. Augustine says, that again, just blew me back, is that the 10 commandments are 10 strings of a harp. And this, he's drawing this from various Psalms that talk about the 10 stringed harp. And he says, these 10 commandments are 10 strings on a harp that you have to learn to play and sing with. And that there's a way of having these 10 strings strung so that there's no beauty in your playing of them. And he says, there are some of you who are keeping these commandments, but the noise you're making is not beautiful. Like you're obedient and all of the rest of us wish you were disobedient because you're, there, there are some people who their non-Christian self is a little more tolerable than their Christian self, if you know what I'm talking about. Right? So sometimes your sins are causing the, your neighbor's teeth to be set on edge, and sometimes it's your sinlessness. Some of you could do with a little bit of, you know, a white lie now and then, or maybe some root beer, I don't know, something, watch an R-rated movie, do something so that your neighbor knows you're human, right? That what Augustine is saying is you've got to learn to obey in ways that are sweet, Learn to, to live the life God has called you to live and leave sweetness in your wake so that people smell the sweetness of God, not the, the harshness, the, the bitter smell of your harsh religiosity or self-righteousness. So three texts really quickly. Psalm 19. This is the psalm for the day. The law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and gives wisdom to the innocent. The statutes of the Lord are just and rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear and gives light to the eyes. Now many of us will have, and not without reason, we will have come to think of law as something burdensome, as something that exhausts the soul, that overburdens us and makes it so that we can't live. And there are ways of legalistically and performatively receiving the law that are in fact burdensome, 
that are in fact joy stealing. There's a way of playing the harp that just is noise. It's oppressive, but there is a way of receiving the commandments of the Lord that revives your life, that stokes in you the, the passion for life. And that is what the Lord's commands are meant to do, to give light to the eyes, to brighten your countenance, to make you feel clean, to make you feel clean, not cleaner than someone else, but at peace with yourself. The fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever, the Psalm says. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, more than much fine gold, sweeter far than honey, than honey in the comb. And then verse 12, the psalmist says, who can tell how often he offends? We, we don't realize, we'll, we'll come to the confession later, we don't realize how often we sin and what we leave undone. Most of us, I think we live in a culture in which we, we deal with a lot of shame and we feel a lot of pressure to apologize, but I don't know that we remember how to repent for our sins. And feeling bad is not the same thing as being aware of your sins. And apologizing is not the same thing as repenting. And one of the basics we have to recover is the basics of an awareness of ourselves as sinners unashamed of it, knowing that we're loved as sinners, and yet there are all kinds of ways that I am faulting the people around me. I'm causing damage to people around me, mostly by what I leave undone. Not by what I do, but what I do not do. So I, I must, and this is what the psalmist prays, cleanse me from my secret faults. They're not secret to my neighbors, they're secret to me. Things that I'm doing that I don't know I'm doing things that I'm failing to do that I don't even realize I'm failing to do. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Above all, keep me from presumptuous sins. Let them not get dominion over me. And this, this is the idea I want you to sense first. That there are sins in our lives, things we don't feel bad for, hear me. Most of the sin that's in my life and yours, we don't feel guilt for. We've been raised in kind of moralistic circles that are more concerned with us being nice than with us being truly kind. And many of us feel bad when we're not nice, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being unnice. I'm talking about ways in which we are sinning by not bringing the joy of the Lord into people's lives or by interrupting the joy that they should know. And most of that happens without us being aware of it. And we certainly don't feel guilty for it. It takes a revelation of the spirit to show us, no, this is what you're doing or not doing. And this is the effect it's having. And so if we don't pray for that kind of illumination, God, show me my secret faults, expose in me what is not true. We will be under the dominion of sins and we'll never feel guilt for it. We'll just strive harder and harder to be nice, never realizing that we're not being kind. And as Father Robbie says, niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Two more texts really quickly. The very end of Exodus 20. I'm not going to go through the whole Ten Commandments. You should know them. Although, interestingly, I asked my kids last night if they, how many of the Ten Commandments they could remember and if they understood them. And Emery had the insight of all insights. The first one he named was adultery. So I don't know how to feel about that, that, that my ten-year-old's first one, and then the second one was murder. So adultery and murder, he knows, are not right. But Julie is my witness, as long as she doesn't bear false witness, that you didn't know you were going to get Ten Commandment jokes this morning. 
One of the things Clive said is he knows he's not allowed to say that you shall not lie is one of the commandments, because it's not. You shouldn't lie. But the commandment is about bearing false witness, which is a different, it's a public responsibility, not to misrepresent your neighbor's experience. Lying is about your own sense of what's true. Bearing false witness is distorting the way others, other people see your neighbor. And that's what's forbidden. Do not distort through your gossip or slander, through your backbiting. Do not distort the way others see your neighbor. But Clive did remember that. He's like, I know I'm not supposed to say you should not lie. But Emory is don't commit adultery. And I was like, what does adultery mean? Which, you know, I'm sure Julie was like, don't ask that question. He's 10. Do you know what he thought it meant? Pretending to be an adult when you're not. (laughs) Which, listen, that's deep. Like, let that, just sit with that for a minute. Pretend, and to make it even funnier is he has a hand puppet who actually answered for him. So Jeffrey, <laughs> Jeffrey the hand puppet says, adultery is when you're pretending to be an adult and you're not. The very end of Exodus 20, I'm almost done. <laughs> this is the truth, isn't it, babe? Yeah. And when, when we laughed, he was like, what? That, what else could it be? <laughs> I was like, no, that's exactly what it is. So at the very end of Exodus 20, where the Lord has spoken all these words, have no other gods before me, all the way down the list. The people say to Moses, verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen. They're they're trembling, they're overwhelmed because of the the fireworks around the, the announcement of these words. It's fascinating. The word commandment is not actually used in this text. They come to be called the commandments later for reasons we won't get into but they're terrified, they're overwhelmed by the sound, by the smoke, by the fire, by the trembling, and they're afraid. And they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And then Moses says this, do not be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. I think this is perhaps the place where our churches have failed most miserably, is that we've not taught people that when the Lord talks, you have to think about a lot of things at once, and often in ways that seem contradictory. Do not be afraid, for the Lord has come to put his fear on you. What does that mean? I mean, you just told me not to be afraid because you've come to make me afraid. And we, we have to learn, this, this is just the God, in that sermon I mentioned, Augustine says to those people, you have to love God as he is, not as you wish he were. This is God as he is. This is how he talks. I can't help it. I'll do my best to translate, but this is just how he talks. Do not be afraid. I've come to put my fear upon you. But, here, but here's the key. The fear of the Lord is what delivers us from all other fears. And this is the one simple point I want you to take away from today. That and adultery is pretending to be an adult. (laughs) What is the fear of the Lord? Isaiah 11, last passage. Isaiah 11, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. A, A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, on the Messiah. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide or by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge for the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. This is what the fear of the Lord brings. This morning, a dear friend of mine, Father Kenneth Tanner, early this morning sent me a text and says, what is the fear of the Lord? And this is what I said back to him. These are my final words to you and then we'll, we'll move to the next, to the baptisms. The fear of the Lord is that awe which frees us from all fears. To fear the Lord is to be afraid of nothing. To fear the Lord is not to feel God is a threat, but to recognize the threat his goodness is to all that threatens you. The fear of the Lord is the fear Jesus has. The fear of the Lord is the fear Jesus has. How did Jesus relate to his father? How did he feel toward his father? He felt the fear of the Lord. And this is what he gives to us. Isaiah 11. The fear of the Lord is the gift of the spirit, which most delights us because it is the culmination of the grace needed to judge for the poor, to do justice so that the wolf can lie down with the lamb. That's who we're called to be. Turn to the Lord. Fear the Lord. And there are no other fears that can stand. Amen.